Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. And when you've gotten there, let's, let's stand if you're able to as we read God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Let's pray. Lord, please bless this time in your word this morning. I, I pray that you would continue, Lord, to, to not only sanctify us, to make us more like Christ, but to renew our hearts and our minds that we would think more like your people and less like the children of this world. Help us to see the world through proper eyes that we may be full of hope even as we see the world seemingly come apart. So, Lord, feed your people, equip your people, prepare them for the work that you have given as they go out into this week ahead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have been stuck on this theme of hope for a while. Um, I think in part through, through time spent with the students that we had this last uh, session, which ended a couple weeks ago now, um, but also just in what I'm seeing both in, in the churches at large. I serve uh, on the uh, Ministers and Churches Committee for the Presbytery, um, also part of a church plant, and then also I, I'm online enough to see a lot of Christians, a lot of pastors and leaders online as well. And it just seems to me in every aspect, every facet of those three, there's a hopelessness um, that is troubling, um, disabling, and, and you know, when you boil it down, just seems to be taking our eyes off the ball. I wanna, before I go any further than that, I want to take us back to the uh, book of Numbers. If you want to turn there, I'm not going to read from it directly, I'm going to summarize it, but Numbers chapter 12 and 13 there's a, a passage I've noted from time to time, or a story that I've noted from time to time, and I just happened to read it again this week. I was reminded of this. But Numbers 12 and 13 is, is, is about the story of Israel completing the, the first, well, completing the initial journey that God set them on when he brought them out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness. They have finally arrived at the Promised Land, so they're here. They finally arrive. God has proven faithful. So they stand on the verge of this land, and it hasn't been easy. There have been setbacks along the way. There's been, there's been problems with food. There's been enemies attacking them from various angles. And, and in the midst of that, the people of Israel struggling periodically to trust the leadership. What are we doing out here? Why did we leave in the first place? Just like us, they so easily forget the rottenness and suffering of their former place that God delivered them from and see it as better than where God is leading them now. So here they are, this, this band of weary people who are ready to receive what God has promised them. And they stand on the doorstep of that, and God says, I want you to send spies into the land to see what the land is like. So for 40 days, the spies go throughout the land. It's not, it's not entirely clear whether this is a strategic sort of move by God, 
or this is something that is meant to bolster the spirits of the people. I want to prove to you that this is what I said it was. This is what I promised it to be. And so the spies come back, and and the initial report is fantastic. This is an amazing place, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is good land. It's nothing like the wilderness. Nothing like anything we've seen along the way. This, we can make a go of it here. It's a fantastic place. Look at the fruit. Look at the grapes and the pomegranates. Look at, look at the produce of the land. We are excited. This is where we want. But then, very quickly, there's this but that, that comes in. However, there's people there. And these people are big. They're the sons of Anak, which none of us really, that doesn't register with us. They're the sons of the Nephilim. They're giants. They're huge. Compared to them, we're like grasshoppers. They're big. We're small. We, this is a land we've always been promised, but how on earth are we going to do this? We can't do this. We can't fight this people. This is a fool's errand. This is suicide. And the people despair. And, and it's amazing when you look at their response. You know, why did the Lord bring us all the way out here just to die? It'd be better for us to go back to Egypt right now. In fact, some of them start to make a move to elect a new leader to go all the way back. Which I was thinking about this morning. It's like, had any of them ever considered what kind of response they might get from the Egyptians? They didn't leave on the best of terms. They're not going to roll out the red carpet. Oh, we're so glad you're back. We just cleaned up all the devastation that you guys caused us. Welcome home. Uh, but they, but they lose heart, and they despair. And in the midst of that, Caleb and, and, and Joshua, of, of all these spies, say, hold on. Think, think about this through a different lens. Do you realize what we've just gone through? Not, not, not the fact that the suffering, not, not the Egyptians, not all that stuff that we face on the way, but the fact that God guided us all the way through that? How, how have we fared with God leading us? We're here, aren't we? And if God's delight is in us, then this is not a problem for him. And I I love this phrase at the end. This is in 13. The Lord has removed the protection from these people and they are like bread to us. This is not going to be a fight, guys. We're going to take out swords. We're going to shoot arrows. We're going to have spears out. We're going to have to run into battle. But, but this is going to be a cakewalk because God is with us. Do you remember who we are? Do you remember who our God is? And, and the people, people refused to hear that perspective and turned in despair. And so the Lord sent them out into the wilderness for 40 more years. Until that faithless generation was gone. Until they would be given the land again. But but it's that difference of perspective. Now, all the spies were seeing the same thing. They were were seeing the goodness of the land. They were seeing the dangers of the land. Joshua and Caleb were not saying, there's no fortified cities. There's no giants there. They, they, They saw the same stuff. And yet their report was different. 
because, because of how God factored into the whole equation. Yes, this is what we see. These are the real empirical facts on the ground of what this will cost us, what this will be like. This will not, in one sense, be easy at all. But God is with us. And that changes the whole equation. Don't you see? They didn't see. This passage, the story sticks out to me because I see much of the same parallel. I see some parallels between that story and where we are now. We as the people of God, we are the people of God, amen? That's what we call ourselves. That's not just a name, that is a fact. We are the people of God, and we have likewise been given a glorious mission, haven't we? To raise high the name of Jesus Christ, to proclaim his excellencies to the world. With what kind of expectation of success? Huge. Not because we are amazing. Not because we are apologetics geniuses or we have the right sales pitch, or we happen to be Presbyterian. Of course, Presbyterians really know what's going on. It's, we've got the sauce. It's because our God is great, and His purpose is to save a fallen world using us. Using us in all of our humanness and weakness and stubbornness and silliness. We've been given this glorious mission, and yet we face a world with similar challenges, right? I mean, we prayed about that. I prayed about that. I mean, I, I think we're looking at the same world. I'm, I'm dismayed by what I see in Ukraine. That seems hopeless. I'm dismayed by what I see in our country. But what, who knows economically where this is going to end? And this can have implications for all of us. We're all going to have to adjust. We're all going to have to change. That may be dramatic changes. It may change the equation for a lot of things that we counted on in this life. There are challenges that our kids face that are, that are different than what we experienced growing up. And I mean, I, for one, speak as one who is absolutely clueless with how to parent 20-year-olds. I'm learning, but it's tough. And, and I dare say at times it feels hopeless. We have opposition of the world. We have you know, all the different debates in our culture going on that, that definitely seem slanted against the church, against the people of God, against God. Are we, how do we carve a space out in all of this? Let alone the stuff that we face close at hand. You're looking for a pastor. It's not fun looking. It's better having. You want that stability, security. You want to know what's next, how this is going to go, where we go from here. Maybe even asking questions of why are we in this state in the first place? Is God displeased with us? You're faced with, I, mean, I hear that you've got another round of COVID going through. I mean, how long, oh Lord, we put up with this? And it's not just an inconvenience, it's scary. We have cancer that we're facing. We have our, just the fact of our own mortality that we're facing. All the challenges. How do we live godly lives in this? And it is easy, isn't it, to despair. I, I feel completely comfortable because I was raised dispensational. This is like our bread and butter. The world is bad and getting worse. Get ready for the rapture. I, if only. But, but we're, we're called to stand in here. We're called to be a particular kind of people in this time. Let me, let me give you a few examples here that... that just ring in my ears as I read these. 
1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, this is, this is on the heels of Paul speaking at length about the reality of the resurrected Jesus, which means that we, his people, will likewise be raised from the dead. Death no longer has any sting. This is good news. The grave is empty. That's not just a theological point. That's a reality for the people of God. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Steadfastness, patience, immovable, not easily swayed, not easily discouraged, rooted, grounded, and not, not brash and bold and arrogant, but stable in the face of trials, stable in the face of suffering, stable in the face of uncertainty, knowing how to respond as the people of God, abounding in the work of God, focused on the task at hand and not distracted by the noise. Focused, confident that as we labor in the work that God has given us, that that work, no matter how it feels, is not in vain. God is at work, even when we can't see it. That's that's one snapshot. Let me give you another. 2 Corinthians 4. And I want you, I'm less concerned with the actual words, but the spirit of how Paul is writing here that I want you to catch. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. I mean, do you feel that? Do you feel that? We have these treasure in jars of clay. We're not impressive. We're not strong. We're not the A team. We're weak. We have these treasures of jar of clay to show that the surpass to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Christ also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith... According to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Notice the, 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 the focus, the spirit through all that. It's not, it's not toughness. It's steadfastness, it's immovability, which allows them to lay down their lives for others where otherwise we'd be tempted to protect ourselves. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Last one, Philippians 1.18. 
Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will, his imprisonment, turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all shamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Christians are meant to be characterized by hope. As the world is coming apart, we read that right in the responsive reading at the beginning in Psalm 46. Everything is tearing apart. Everything's coming to pieces. Forget America. This is the whole world. God is our rock. God is our refuge. We will not be moved. When God says, be still and know that I am God, that is good news for His people because that's the rock we stand on. That's the one giving the orders. Do we have that perspective? How, how, do, we, how do we get there? How do, how, do we, how do we become people characterized by hope? That need is there. The, the world is looking to us for that. It's, yes, it is important to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and tell them who He is and what He's like, but they also need to see it. The good news without believing it is just a story, another story out there. What speaks to people is seeing people who believe this and it transforms the way they look at the world. They're struck down but not afflicted. Crushed. But they don't despair. Killed. And yet rejoice. What is wrong with you? How do you see this this way? And so, so I come to this passage before us, Romans 5. And I, I'm going to do a little bit... I mean, I'm going to do something a little bit different here. I'm not going to work my way through the passage and, and capture all the logic. I just want to pull out of this what I see are four foundational truths about hope, as Paul understands it. So... So let's, let's return to, to Romans 5. Let me read this again just to remind us where we are. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, so four things I want to pull out of this. First is this connection, and Paul doesn't explicitly make this, but I, I think it, it fits very much in the theme of this section. is a connection between our justification and hope. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is... This is we know this, right? We, we know the catechism questions that cover this. We've got this doctrine nailed down, but that's not what Paul is testing. What Paul is, is trying to get us to see is that's something to seek your teeth into. That's something to be believed. And I, and I stress that because I'm seeing an, an increasing number of Christians, solid Christians otherwise, who believe all this stuff, who don't know peace with God. I was thinking about that as we did the, the confession earlier this morning and then the assurance. 
I, I know better, I, well, I believe I know better than to, to add the qualification. That confession there didn't pay for your sins, right? Not any more than coming to the table later on pays for your sins. No, nothing that we do here pays for our sins, right? We know that. Believing that's hard, right? Because it's worked out in our devotional habits. It's worked out in how we pray. It's worked out in the absence of really feeling these things, isn't it? Why don't I love the Word? Why don't I love church? Why don't I love to sing? Why do I feel so numb to the things of God? I'm doing something wrong. I need to correct that. Until I correct it, my sins remain. We know that's bad theology, but we internalize that, don't we? If we have been justified, what is the means of our justification? Christ's death, right? He died for our sins. He lived a perfect life that we could not, and both were applied to, or, or the great exchange, the glorious exchange. Our sin was paid by Him. His righteousness given to us. What did we do? We receive it in faith. Yay, humans. And it feels like presumption, doesn't it? We, we are by nature pagans. We are by nature just wired to want to pay for everything if we really want to claim it. And this frustrates that. It is a gift. Put your wallet away. Put your good works away. Receive what God has purchased for you in Christ. And that justification brings us peace with God. Not, not first what we feel, but in reality, God is no longer your enemy. God is no longer angry at you and your sins. God no longer wants to destroy you for standing against him as a rebel. His, his, his attitude towards those who are in Christ is all love, all mercy, all warmth, all kindness for your good. He's not just paid for our sins and settled accounts. It's cleared the way for Him to make an everlasting covenant with us, which He overflows with love towards us. By God's grace, may we know something of that love during this life. We will know it when we stand before Him. Now we receive it by faith. But that is real. That is ours. And that is vital. In fact, I would say that is the foundation of our hope. Knowing that we are okay with God. Because God, otherwise, is our greatest threat, right? I mean, we could talk about, you know, whatever threats are out there right now. None of them hold a candle to what God is as an enemy to us. And if He's made peace with us, that is why the Bible can say, if God is for us, nothing can stand against us. Who is it that brings any charges? God's justified us. We belong to Him. He is the highest authority. He is the greatest power. He is the one to whom everything is due. And if He says, no longer owe me anything, I am your God and you are my people, that is everything we need to have hope as Christians. So hope and justification. 
real comfort, real assurance, real strength, real joy. That helps us to be steadfast and immovable. But that's not all that Paul says here. So that's the first one. Second is what Paul says here about the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Another aspect of this Christian hope is future-looking. Again, I fear a weakness in the modern church. I, I spend, I mean, as you know, as I spend a lot of time with young people, with, with high school, college age students, and I, I say this half jokingly, but my fear is that if you press us and we say, are you excited about the return of Jesus? Everyone, of course, says yes. But if I said, what if Jesus came before the day of your wedding? Or what if Jesus comes before you finish college? The day before? Or the day before you get on the plane to go to that place overseas that you've been wanting to go all your life? Or the day before you deliver your first child? Or you see your first grandchild? Or buy a house? Or all these things that are so, they're wonderful and they're meaningful and they're valuable parts of our life. But if we're truly honest with ourselves, do, do not those things tend to want us to make, yeah, that'd be great if he came back before I got married. But if he could wait another hundred years, that'd be great. I mean, what's a hundred years to the Lord? And that's a struggle for us. And it's a struggle for us, especially because the Bible keeps pointing towards the end, right? That is the whole thrust of Hebrews 11, is that, that many of these people who live by faith did not receive in this life what they were promised, but they didn't care because their eyes were fixed on a better place, a better country, an eternal kingdom. That is why God is not ashamed to call them his people. We're to be future-oriented because our future as Christians is sure, amen? amen. Christ is coming back in glory. That's our hope. Just as he left, all of us will be raised in glory, just like him. Amen? Amen. No more sickness, no more infirmities, no more sin, no more curse. It will be over. Creation will be remade in glory. Creation now groans under the weight of the curse, but it will, like us, be renewed in glory. And Jesus will institute a glorious kingdom that will last forever. That's our hope. For a lot of it, it just feels like a condiment to life. That's, that's important. That's what roots us. That's what helps us to stand and be focused and be busy about the things we ought to be doing rather than being discouraged, dissuaded, distracted by all these other things. So hope in the glory of God. Third, and probably the one that's most obvious in this section is, is what Paul says here about the connection between hope and suffering. We need hope for suffering. Don't we? Otherwise, how do we endure? But Paul reverses the order here. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Hope comes at the end of this process, not before or without it. This is is like, I mean, how many of us have prayed the prayer at some point of God giving us patience and then making us wait? It's like, 
And we don't get it. We're just like, anytime that'll be great. He's like, the, the answer is in process right now. You're just not getting it yet. You haven't received it yet. But, but this is hard. This is different. That, that hope is forged through suffering. We, we have a hope. In fact, I think these, these first two facets that I brought out, um, the hope of our, our justification, the hope, the future hope of the glory of God, are, are part of this initial hope that takes us into suffering, but it's through suffering that it gets really tested and tried and forged and strengthened. So that when we come out, that hope is of a different quality than when we went in. I think, it's, I think it's similar to, to how something like courage works. I, I was, as I was driving here, for whatever reason, this is, this is how my mind works on a Sunday morning. Um, I was thinking, you know, it's fascinating. Two generations ago, we, we would not be surprised by the news of hundreds, if not thousands, of late teenagers signing up to fly bombers over Germany. What would I let a late teenager do today? Not a lot. Well, what on earth compelled them to do that? They must have been incredibly courageous to go and do that. Maybe some. But, but it was also of necessity that they did. Because the country was threatened. The world was threatened. It was the right thing to do. And if you think that those young men were not afraid to go into battle to fly over Germany to watch their, their, their fellow soldiers die or the prospect of dying themselves, I think would be foolish. But it was tested through the fire of war. My, my wife's grandfather was a bomber pilot over, over Germany. He, I think he got in when he was 16 and flew over 30 missions. Just astounding. I don't think he was any less scared than I would have been or you would have been. But we had to do it. And through that experience, he learned something about how to trust the equipment, how to trust the crew, and how to trust these different things. So they knew odds are pretty good they could come through this if they did the right thing. It was forged through the fire of war. Hope is forged through the fire of suffering. That, that's that's the thing that I think if, if we, it's really kind of the key distinguishing mark for us as a Christian is that we're able to look at suffering and not be afraid, but rejoice. Because if God is our God, we understand that suffering has a different purpose for us, a different meaning for us. It's not the punishment of the Lord. It's not the wrath of God against us. He is using this to shape us, to grow us, to teach us, maybe even to break us, so that we learn more of Him, become more rooted in Him. I think I shared this verse last time, but but verse that that I keep coming back to is 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul talks about this duress that he and his team came under, where they despaired of life life itself. Paul, a mature apostle at the time, despairing of life itself, the same guy who said to live is Christ, to die is gain, was brought to the point where that's not his words. His words were more like, I'm done, I'm out. End it now, Lord. 
And he says, but that was to teach us not to rely on our own strength, but in the God who raises the dead to life. He is able to deliver us, and he did. I wonder if Philippians didn't come after that experience. We've been brought to the brink by God to teach us something, and we know something now that you can do whatever you want to be. I know what God is able to do. I know my God, and I'm not shaken by prison or my enemies who preach against me or anything. So suffering takes our shaky hope and makes it firm. And then lastly, this is a little comment he makes at the end, that those who hope in God will never be ashamed. That's the big fear, isn't it? It goes into hope. I mean, you think about what a what a lame word it is in our usual language. I mean, I, I talked about weather at the beginning. I mean, I hope it'll be sunny tomorrow. You know, we all, you know, I don't know, I might as well take a gun and shoot at the sky. It's like, I, nothing, that has no effect on anything here. I'm from the Northwest. I know what this weather's like. Um, that's not hope, as the Bible speaks of it. But the fear that holds us back is that what if? What if I do this? What if I trust him? Well, what if I place my hope in him? What if I take him at his word and it doesn't work? Then I'm going to be the fool. I'm going to be the one who loaded all the chips on this one square and lost everything. And then where will I be? Not just will I look foolish, but as God can prove not to be there, not to be who he is. How do I know? That's understandable because... Again, another part of who we are as humans is to build our knowledge of God from what we experience up. The Bible speaks against that. The Bible is God's revelation to tell us who He is, and He is nothing like what we experience in this life. The most trustworthy person in this life will let you down. Amen? Amen. And they do. And sometimes it's devastating. God is not like a man. He is nothing like us. He is faithful. He is true to his word. He will bring about what he promised. How and when? That's his province. But 100% of the time, however he does it, he will, in the final analysis, prove 100% faithful. And we do not need to fear that we'll be ashamed of our hope in Him. We can put weight on this. And it's not, not, not dependent at all on the strength of our confidence, but in the promise of both, as Paul says here, God's Spirit, which He has given us, as well as the overflowing abundance of His love toward us. God is pleased with us. Isaiah has this great picture that as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride... So God rejoices over his people. Sometimes, I mean, it feels like sometimes we almost treat God like some sort of an administrator in an office. How are my people doing today? Great, not so great? Okay, well, I'll deal with that. God's our Father. God, in, in some respects, God is absolutely different than us. In other respects, is absolutely relatable to us. He loves us with an overwhelming love that's almost embarrassing to consider. It's the kind of love that makes us realize what we don't deserve of it. 
and yet he gives it. He continues to give it. And every single time that we sin, and every single time we fail or fall short, every single time he is still willing, yet again and again and again, for the sake of his son, forgive the sin, clear the slate, and keep on going. Doesn't diminish his love, doesn't diminish his promises, doesn't cause him to roll his eyes. He is steadfast and stable. His, he will not fail us. We will not be disappointed that we put our trust in him. So all that's left now is for us to believe it. There is a difference between professing these things and actually acting on them. And and the first step is to offload the plate that you carry all these cares and concerns and worries and fears on. You know that plate? We all have that plate, right? Somewhere, somewhere deep in the recesses of our soul, we are loaded up with, I've got to take care of this, and I've got to take care of that, and I've got to worry about this, and what's my plan for that, and am I doing this right or wrong, and I have no idea what I'm going to do. And it's as though everything depends on us. We feel the responsibility of it. And God says, you can trust me. And it doesn't mean we don't do anything after that. It doesn't mean that we then go to Cabo and just kick back and don't do anything. But it does mean that we can sleep at night. It does mean that we can enjoy the good things of this life, even though there are hard things to face. It means that in the midst of the chaos of this world that we find ourselves in, we can be focused on loving and caring and forgiving and repenting and doing the day-to-day stuff that he's called us to with hope and with joy and with great patience with each other. Which is what the world needs. It's what the church needs. I want to close with an example. This is, I am, I think he's, he's become easily the, my number one favorite missionary. Um, John Patton, I, I don't know if I've talked about him before, but John Patton was a, a Scottish man in the 1800s, uh, went overseas to the New Hebrides Islands, which is to the east of New Zealand, so about a six to eight month trip. Went over with his young wife, newly married. Along the way, they had a child. And within a couple weeks of land, or a couple months of landing on the islands, islands populated by cannibals, both he, his son, and his wife had died. He writes this, stunned by that dreadful loss, in entering upon this field of labor to which the Lord had himself so evidently led me, my reason seemed for a time almost to give way. The ever-merciful Lord sustained me, and that spot became my sacred and much-frequented shrine. He's talking about the, the graveside of his wife and son. During all the following months and years when I labored on for the salvation of the savage islanders amidst difficulties, dangers, and deaths, but for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed to me there, I must have gone mad and died beside the lonely grave. What's important to see in all of this is that Christian hope is not a step out of the reality of the world into some sort of dreamland where we feel nothing. It faces it. It sits at the grave of your wife and your child, far away from home, constantly faced with threats and uncertainties and doubts, all that stuff. 
on the verge of sanity itself and feeling the presence of the Lord. So you can continue. You can labor for days and months and years with hope, with joy, with real love for, for these, these people who don't know their right hand from their left. Let me read a couple more. I felt her loss beyond all conception or description in that dark land. It was very difficult to be resigned, left alone, and in sorrowful circumstances. But feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits, I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And he goes on to describe, I mean, so many great parts from this biography of his. But, but he, he talks a couple times about the, how these different natives, native groups who were fighting against each other would often blame him for the changing circumstances that we find, whether it was weather or earthquake or, or typhoon or whatever. Anything that went wrong was blamed on him and on the gospel that he's presenting. So constantly under threat, he writes this, My enemies seldom slacken their hateful designs against my life, however calmed or baffled for the moment. A wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket, and though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded, hope, that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow, and they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. Suffering produces endurance, produces character, produces hope. This is, this is not about what a great man John Patton was. This is about what he discovered about hope and how that hope sustained him through unimaginable circumstances in a way that challenges me where I am now. I want that hope. I want that assurance. Don't you? I want to be steadfast like that. I want, I want to be immovable. If, if the mountains are falling into the sea, if people are going crazy, if America just you know, goes up in a big ball of flame... I want to be the one whose hope is rooted in the Lord, that as that happens, I can focus on the task at hand and not lose my mind. Because everything in my life would be disrupted otherwise. But my hope is in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are just scratching the surface of who you are, how you view us, what you have given us of yourself. I, I rejoice in the fact that you're patient with us. And, and especially so seeing that in the example of the disciples, as long as they spent with Jesus, failed to grasp the same things. It's us. Uh, we are by nature weak in faith easily distracted, uh, in need of a change of perspective, 
a change of conviction. Lord, we, we need you to work that hope into our lives. We need it today. We need it for ourselves, for our families, for our calling in this world. Um, as a church, we need this hope, Lord. This is, this is what adds weight to the gospel that we proclaim. That we are a different people, characterized by hope, not caught up in all the fear and uncertainty of this life, but confident, steadfast, immovable, because our hope is in you. So Lord, help us to, to take what we profess and make it our belief that we would likewise stand firm, that we would likewise rejoice in the, in the face of suffering, that we would look ho- hopefully with eager expectation for what you will do ahead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.